This is the Center for Strategic and International Studies Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. This is the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk here at CSIS in Washington. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at Smart Women and I'm at Beverly Kirk. It's difficult to turn on the news these days without Russia being in the headlines. So we're talking about all things Russia today with Olga Oliker. She is the senior advisor and director of the Russia Eurasia program here at CSIS. And Olya, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, first, let's talk about all the things that have dominated the news cycle over the summer about Russia. And then we'll move into an area that's not talked about quite as much, which is areas of of U.S.-Russian cooperation. Such which, as they are. <laughs> such as they are. And I know that's a, actually an area you like to talk about, so we'll, we'll get to that. But first things first. Uh, the Trump administration is imposing new sanctions, um, largely export restrictions, against Russia in response to the nerve, nerve agent attack on the former spy and his daughter who live in England. Um, what could the sanctions mean for Russia? I mean, will they have any impact? So we don't know what they are going to be, right? There's a set of sanctions that um, are going to begin as of August 22nd, and those are actually, they're very um, narrow export restrictions, largely ex restricting exports that weren't happening anyway uh, due to other um, restrictions that have been put in place, including by the Obama administration before that. Um, what the Trump administration is doing is it's responding to a requirement that once you've accused somebody of using a chemical weapons agent, you've got to take some sort of action. And if anything, they're a little late with that, right? It was back in March where Donald Trump joined other global leaders in saying that we believe that Russia was behind this attack. Um, so what they've said is on August 22nd, you're going to get these export restrictions. And then 90 days later, there's going to be other things. And we don't know what those other things are. There's a menu that the administration can choose from. Um, and it includes some pretty draconian measures. It includes um, denial of uh, any U.S. support for international loans, denial of any U.S. loans to Russian Russians. Um, it includes um, not letting Russian airlines land and uh, take off from American airports. It includes further severing diplomatic relations. So there's not an awful lot of diplomatic relations left. So, you know, that might be a challenge. But the point is there's a long list so they can choose from it. So we don't know what the impact's going to be on Russia. Of the August 22nd sanctions, not that much. Of the later sanctions, it depends on what they are. And there's also this new bipartisan bill that was introduced in the Senate that, if it makes its way through Congress, uh, would actually expand sanctions and freeze Russian bank operations, as I understand it, uh, that are conducted in dollars? So it would, yeah, you'd, it would create all sorts of new limitations. And what's interesting here is those sanctions aren't about the Skripal poisoning at all, right? Those sanctions are about Russian election interference. So there's a whole list of things they'd like the Russians to stop doing, which at some level, you can kind of quip that it amounts to if Russia could stop doing its foreign policy, we'll consider lifting uh, those sanctions. Um, so if 
it's you can you can speculate that to an extent the administration might have um, finally issued their Skripal poisoning plan in part to ward off this uh, this new bill that's introduced in the Senate to just say we're doing things you don't need to worry. But the two things are also very separate because they're meant to address different forms of Russian misbehavior, and it's entirely plausible that they'll kind of march in lockstep together. And from the Russian perspective, it's all part and parcel of the same thing that it's part of a general American campaign that has nothing to do with any specific Russian actions or policies and everything to do with just limiting and containing Russia. And it's something that they see the president of the United States as having at least made some effort to curtail. And they see Congress and the American establishment as somehow keeping him from doing this. But I think their notion is that if the Americans were serious about improving relations, all of this would stop, which is a very different reading from the one you get in the United States, which is that these are specific responses to specific issues, kind of, so you can do the one and still pursue cooperation on something else. And you just have this incredible disconnect in the way that people in the two countries understand all of this. And I have a question about what I I term mixed messaging coming mm -hmm. up, but I want to yeah, follow no, up. I want to follow up on on this by uh, asking about the reaction from Russia to the proposed legislation. The Prime Minister Medvedev uh, had said that that if something like this actually became law. Russia would consider it essentially a declaration of war, that it would be a red line that would be crossed. Um, what might that really mean? Are they essentially saying it would be a declaration of war? Or is that a figure of speech, or do we know? So you know, war uh, war gets thrown around a lot lately. We we seem to live in a world where there's information wars and economic wars and all the different kinds of wars. Uh, I tend to be a bit of a purist. I like to think about wars as involving organized violence. Um, but blockades have historically been seen as acts of war, right? If you cut off a country, physically cut off a country's access to trade and resources that has historically been seen as an act of war. And you can argue that if you cut Russian banks off from international banking systems, it's um, it's arguable. Uh, so just kind of from an international legal standpoint, they wouldn't be nuts to view it that way. Um, I do think they're waiting and seeing. So of course, the rhetoric is going to be, this is unacceptable. The rhetoric has been that this is unacceptable and illegal all along, right? That the Russians will say that they did not poison anybody. Vladimir Putin has said, um, apparently to Donald Trump repeatedly, that he did not interfere in any elections. Uh, so they say they did not do these things. So the US punishing them for things they did not do can only be interpreted as capricious anger. Um, there's a Russian narrative that basically amounts to uh, Democrats and the establishment are unhappy that Donald Trump won the election, and they are angry at Russia about it. They've decided to focus their anger on Russia, so they're punishing Russia for this, and that's all this is. It's a domestic American political issue, and there's nothing Russia can do to stop it. There's nothing, you know, it, it has nothing to do with Russia's own policies. And I do think in Russia that's... Um, that's a very prevailing narrative, that even people who recognize that there are disagreements and real issues do believe that it's been taken over by the domestic uh, American political uh, debate, and there is nothing they can do to change it, that they could withdraw from uh, Support, supporting separatists in Ukraine with guns and occasionally people, and the sanctions would stay on. Um, and 
you know, I think some of the sanctions probably would at this point because they are written into law, and that makes it harder to lift them. Uh, in principle, if Russia takes action in Ukraine, the Ukraine sanctions go away. Again, all of these sanctions tend to be li linked, at least to some extent, to specific things. But when you get into the congressional language where it's we want Russia out of Syria, we want Russia out of Ukraine, we want Russia, they're not going to do all of these things. So there is an argument. Yeah, there isn't much they can do. How do you prove a negative? How do you prove that they're not interfering in the U.S. election? Um, so I think that's that's the challenge. And that's... They, that's how they see it. They see it as something that the United States could just stop because it's silly anyway. And if the U.S. isn't stopping it, then it's part of a concerted campaign against Russia. And now I want to go back to this mixed messaging or um, some might say inconsistencies in the message from Washington to Moscow. The administration has said that it wants to improve relations with Russia. And as you see in Congress, not so much on that path uh, because of the issue of the interference in the elections, which Russia, as you mentioned, denies that it did. So are we really at a, a low point in relations between the U.S. and Russia? Some have said that it's the lowest since the Cold War, or is this something completely new? I guess a new low. It's a, it's a new low. It's it's very, very bad, and it's very, very different. Uh, and how dangerous is that? And it's pretty dangerous. Uh, the Cold War was um, an organizing principle for the world, right? You had two superpowers, and everything they did, they did through the lens of how is the other going to respond, positively or negatively. So you had two countries that were funneling their policies through at least awareness of how the other looked at them. That's not what we have now, right? So the the Russians do, to some extent, continue to look to the United States, but the United States has become a little less predictable, so it's become harder for them to actually think through their policies in the context of how will the U.S. respond. And beyond that, they, they have a view that the way the United States is responding is capricious and is geared towards limiting Russian power, um, at least when it comes to Russia. The United States, meanwhile, looks to Russia for things that are specific to Russia, but even then tends to stovepipe them and not think about their broader impact and takes action all around the world without really thinking about Russia at all, which is how the United States treats all of the world because Russia is one of many, many countries and the United States has interests globally. So you have this additional disconnect that to an extent, Russia still looks at things through something of a Cold War lens, but the United States hasn't and doesn't. So Russia is an irritant. Russia is a problem, but Russia isn't an organizing principle for U.S. politics, uh, U.S. foreign policy, uh, whereas the United States has historically been something of an organizing principle for Russian foreign policy. But right now, Russia is finding a lot of space to maneuver without paying attention to the United States, too. It's not quite sure how to do that, which means that it's a much it's much less predictable. And I would also say that there's a certain risk tolerance that is developed in both Moscow and Washington, where during the Cold War, there was one of the things that both both countries were doing was trying very hard to avoid any direct confrontation with one another. You get the sense that right now there are at least some people in positions of power in both countries that kind of think, eh, maybe a little confrontation wouldn't be that bad. It would show them. It would show them our, that, you know, we mean we mean what we say. Um, they're they're going to be the ones who back down anyway. And I think that tendency is very dangerous. Uh, this belief that you can control the escalation, that uh, 
we're they're going to understand our signals and they're going to back off when we demonstrate to them that we mean what we say. Both sides are thinking this. You know, they could be very, very wrong about their ability to control escalation and send signals that are understood by the other side. And since there are the mixed messages, the administration wants to wants better relations. There are people mm-hmm. in Congress who are not supportive of that. Well, they want better relations with Russia, just not maybe this Russia. They want better relations with the Russia they want. Um, it's not, Does that Russia exist, though? Not, not at present. It may never. I mean, it's also not entirely clear to me what the administration means when they say they want better relations. Because on specific issues, it's not as though they want, you know, I think what everybody says when they say they want better relations is we want the other guy to do what we, we say. And everybody wants that. Everybody is totally pro the other guy giving in and going along with their agenda. Um, now, the agendas might be a little bit different. Congress really wants some sort of admission of guilt as well as punishment for the election interference, right? And that's that's what this is, right? You want them to stop, but as I said before, how do you prove that they've stopped? They want something else. They want to feel like they've made their point and the Russians will never, ever do this again. Well, how would you do that? Do you want an agreement? I mean, it gets very complicated and difficult, and I don't know that that's been very thought through. So a lot of it comes down to we want to punish them adequately which is how the Russians read it, except they read it as being punished for something they didn't do. Um, The administration wants, I think, wants to make some deals with the Russians, but it's not 100% clear what they're willing to give up in exchange for what. And I think that's that's a big question there. and part of the challenge is you have you have multiple policies and multiple policy goals coming out of Washington from Congress, from the State Department, from the White House, from the Defense Department. So you want a Russia that doesn't threaten U.S. allies or doesn't make U.S. allies feel threatened. You want a Russia that isn't destabilizing Ukraine. You want a Russia that isn't interfering in elections. But different people want different aspects of this more and less. And Russia wants a United States that leaves it in peace to run its own country the way it wants to run it and to build influence in its neighborhood and around the world. And that's what it thinks it's doing. So wanting better relations is great, but somebody has to define what they mean by wanting better relations. And you touched on something I want to follow up on all of this, what is Putin's grand strategy for his uh, dealings with the U.S. and the West? Is it to divide and use the divisions uh, as opportunities for Russia to insert itself uh, in different places where it thinks it can make a difference? You raised the issue of Syria. Um, I would also add the call that Putin made to President Erdogan in Turkey after the U.S. announced sanctions against Turkey. Is that the strategy? And how does it fit in with, um, you know, the things that we've talked about? So the way I see Russian grand strategy, and this isn't just Putin, I do think this is, there are some things in Russia that are Putin, and there are some things in Russia that are Russia. And Russia has very consistently sought to rebuild and cement itself as a great power. It doesn't necessarily want a return to bipolarity, though that wouldn't be bad, but it doesn't expect that. And it also thinks the United States has been declining, is declining. So it it said for a very very long time that it sees the world as multipolar. And now it's finally starting to maybe be true, which is a complicating part of this equation. So the way Russia had 
has historically seen this all playing out is that over time, American influence declines, and Russia has some opportunities there. Now, those are opportunities both to collaborate with the United States and to take on roles that the United States previously had uh, in areas where the United States is moving out of. Um, What's happening now is that the United States is becoming, it's doing this, but it's doing this in a more chaotic and more rapid way than the Russians accept, expected. Donald Trump is the third U.S. president in a row to come into office saying that that he's going to limit U.S. involvements and uh, uh, U.S. responsibilities abroad. So it's not as though this is intrinsically Donald Trump phenomenon. But the way Donald Trump is going about it is making him more effective at doing this than either George W. Bush or Barack Obama, who were constrained both by allies who wanted more U.S. involvement and by domestic advisors who also wanted more U.S. involvement. Donald Trump is not so constrained. On the other hand, he also wants the U.S. to be active in certain areas. So from the Russian perspective, there's all sorts of new opportunities, for instance, in the Middle East, where U.S. power has long been on the decline in terms of the effectiveness of U.S. influence. And now it's really become entirely unclear what the U.S. is doing. But Russia has to actually figure out what it wants in the Middle East, other than just to be there and be influential. And that's a challenge. You can see the same sort of dynamic in Asia. So I think um, in, in Turkey, uh, Russia is interested in exploring the possibilities. I would argue that the Turks also see U.S. decline. They see a changing global structure. They're trying to hedge their bets by developing all sorts of relationships, including with the Russians, who in some ways are more amenable to current Turkish ways of doing things than a lot of the European countries. So, you know, the Russians aren't trying to divide NATO but if and the EU and so forth, but if these institutions happen to fall apart, it's that creates both dangers and opportunities, let's just say. Um, I don't think they had any expectation that Donald Trump would be president, that you would see the, yes, really, they had, I, no, very few people in Russia thought there was any chance that Donald Trump would be elected president. Um, so, you know, it, those who were, I, I suspect, were responsible for thinking about the interference um, activities, I think, saw it far more sending Hillary Clinton the message, right? There's this firm belief uh, in Putin's circle that the protests in 2011 and 2012 that preceded his return to the presidency for a third term were something that Hillary Clinton and the State Department planned and orchestrated and supported. So from that perspective, the concept was, you interfere in my pol domestic politics, I'll interfere in your domestic politics. How about we both go hands off? Now, this isn't quite how this turned out because Donald Trump was elected. You can argue that you know the Russians had something to do with the actual election, his actual election or not, but he was elected. When he was elected, I think the Russians were hopeful that this would at least be a positive relationship because he'd said nice things about Russia. Um, I think the expectation was that he would be what the Russians think of as a normal Republican president, which is sort of on the Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush model rather than the George W. Bush model. Uh, so, you know, it's a question of what, what's, what's a normal Republican. But um, that's not what they've gotten. And it creates real challenges for Russia. But it's it, so, you know, look, 
they don't like what they term as the U.S.-led global order, right? We call it the liberal order. They call it the U.S.-led order. They don't like the U.S.-led part of it. They don't actually care how we all organize our politics uh, in principle. In practice, if it turns out there are all these vulnerabilities, great. But there's nothing about what they're doing in terms of exploiting cleavages that's new. It's just that the cleavages are so strong that they were already there. So then the question is, how much of an effect are these sorts of interference operations really having, and how much of it is it that it just happens to be there when all this stuff is going on anyway? Well, let me remind everyone, you're listening to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk. We're talking about Russia with senior advisor Ola Oliker, and she is the director of the Russia Eurasia program here at CSIS. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. You can follow Olga at Olya Oliker, and let me spell that for you. O-L-Y-A-O-L-I-K-E-R. You can also follow her program at CSIS Russia. And she has a podcast of her own called Russian Roulette. So if you want to know about all things Russia in more in-depth coverage than what we've talked about here today, um, be sure to tune in to Russian Roulette. And we don't just do Russia and Russian roulette. Uh, We do Ukraine and Georgia and Moldova and Belarus and Central Asian countries. Really, if uh, it's former Soviet, uh, we do it. Well, it's a very good podcast. So I recommend after you listen to Smart Women, Smart Power, listen to Russian Roulette. Let's shift gears here. And it's hard to do given everything we've talked about. But are there areas where the U.S. and Russia could cooperate? I mean, people automatically think about the cooperation on the International Space Station. But are there other other areas where the U.S. and Russia uh, can cooperate? Sure. Look, the uh, fact is that there are all sorts of areas where the U.S. and Russia should be talking to each other and working together for their own mutual interests and for global interests. Um, First and foremost of of these is arms control, right? These are two countries with 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. They don't need 90% of the nuclear weapons. I mean, okay, there are a few uh, nuclear strategists who think more is better, but most folks who follow these issues would agree that you could you could do what you're trying to do with a lot less, but you're not going to get reductions without both countries signing on. And that's a conversation that's been going on for decades pretty effectively through real downturns in the relationship. And right now, it's frozen. Um, it's frozen for a few reasons. Um, you know, kind of the problems, uh, you could argue, started back in 2002 when the United States withdrew from the ABM treaty. Uh, right now, both countries are accusing each other of violating the INF Treaty, the misnamed uh, Intermediate Nuclear uh, Forces Treaty, uh, which controls, which actually limits um, nuclear and non-nuclear ground-based missiles of intermediate range. Um, there is a treaty that was um, signed under the Obama administration that limits strategic forces, the New Star Treaty. Uh, which could be extended for five more years. Um, It's now scheduled to expire in 2021, but uh, signatures by the two presidents would give it five more years in existence, which would create time to negotiate new treaties, right? If this treaty expires without, um, without being extended, then a whole lot of verification measures and provisions that have been in place for a very long time just go away, and it would be really hard to negotiate them again. So extending the treaty, you know, it's just a basic smart move. It doesn't, perc- if you can negotiate something faster in the meantime, you can, it would supersede that treaty. But, the, you know, this seems like a 
no-brainer, but for some reason, it's just not happening. Now, when I say for some reason, there there are linkages. Uh, there are people who would like to see the INF uh, disagreements resolved first. There are people in Russia who are concerned you know, who see this as an opportunity to uh, perhaps reopen the missile defense debate. There are all sorts of reasons that this is going on, but because this is something that doesn't require ratification by parliaments, a presidential decision could just make this happen. Um, similarly, you know, the INF treaty, at least in principle, everybody wants a treaty to survive, which means that it should be possible to come to the table talk about the accusations and figure out a way forward. Experts have put forward ideas for how this could happen. It's not going to be easy, but it can be done. Um, and I would argue that this is really important to get this started. This was one of the things that came up during the Helsinki summit. Um, I was it, just going to mention mm -hmm. these were some of the things that there were reports were actually mm -hmm. discussed during but, that summit. But agreement, even agreement to talk was not reached. And I think this is the challenge is that other issues in the relationship um, create, create a hostage situation with the arms control agenda. And I don't think that's healthy. Uh, if you could be confident that the uh, that the Russians wanted this more than the United States, then maybe it could. But because this is good for everybody, and there are people in Russia convinced the United States wants this more than Russia, uh, it's really not not a healthy way to do this. Um, Russians and Americans do coordinate, not cooperate, in Syria um, in the sense that you have forces on the ground from both countries, and there are communications links that work. And what's interesting is every time there's a spat, people say, we're cutting off the communications links. And they very quietly turn them back on because they're useful, uh, because you don't want to be in the position where you're firing at each other. Um, even though you're on different sides in this conflict, you're not actually opposing one another. And both countries want to keep it that way. Now, there was an incident where um, Russian private contractor forces, like armed fighting, but not official Russian military forces, came under fire from uh, US forces. And it, I think what's interesting there is in that case, both countries immediately went into nothing to see here. This is not a real thing, which I think it, you know, it speaks to the desire not to have these crises escalate on both sides. But to keep that going, you need communication and you need to be talking. And I think that that's important. Um, Let's be honest, the resolution of Syria is going to require the U.S. and Russia to talk to each other and coordinate. They're both there. They may wish that the other party would just give up and, you know, throw in their lot with them. That's not going to happen, which means it's some sort of coordinated, negotiated arrangement, which also, oh, by the way, includes not just the Syrians themselves, but also all the other parties to this conflict. No way forward without that. Um, so and how likely is that to happen? Or are we even at a point where that's that's something to be discussed? I think, this, I think this is a conversation to be having. Um, you know, the Russians would say that they're in Syria because Syria was in danger of falling apart entirely, and there was nothing planned to replace it, that the United States and some of the European countries were supporting groups that had no plan or capacity to take over the country, even if they won, and they would be very dangerous with alignments with radical groups if they did win. And the Russians came in at the invitation of the legal government of the country to support that government, and they did help that government 
fight its way back into some sort of sustainability. They certainly don't control all of the country, but their player, you know, the Syrian government is a player again. You can like that, you can dislike that, but you know that that's what they did, and that's what their involvement accomplished. Um, the United States is still there. The Turks are still there. You know, the Turks are on a different side from both Russia and the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving moving forward on this means everybody has to sort it out, but you do have a certain, um, the fight's not over, the war's not over, but it's not what it was. ISIS is severely diminished. Uh, so you can start thinking about how, about the future and you can start thinking about the game plan and that requires both Russia and the United States at the table. Um, if anything, Russia is possibly more important to this than the United States, so the Russians are hoping the U.S. will bankroll whatever is decided. Well, as we wrap up here, we're quickly running out of time, and I could talk to you about these issues all day, but I just want to ask a, a wrap-up question. Looking ahead in the U.S.-Russia relationship, do we expect more tensions, uh, given all the things we've discussed here in the last few minutes? Um, And particularly because the U.S. is in an election year cycle, the midterms are coming up. Uh, Do we we expect these tensions to, to get worse, to stay at the same level that they are? Or what are your thoughts on that? The trend line is that things keep getting worse. Right, you think you've hit a new low, and then you discover that oh my gosh, we can go lower. Who knew? Uh, it's, you know, because kind of that, that knock from that knock from beneath, uh, suggesting oh, there's there's a lower is it contingent floor. on whether anyone thinks Russia interferes with the upcoming midterms? Somebody's going to think that Russia interferes. Somebody's going to find evidence of something. Um, right? There's there's almost no way that's not going to happen. You know, there's there's this notion that Russia is a um, unitary actor that, you know, there's somebody making all the decisions that somebody's Vladimir Putin and everybody implements. That's not really how it works. There's a certain, Vladimir Putin is one guy, he probably sleeps at least a couple hours a night. Uh, he doesn't control all the things. So there's a lot of people and a lot of organizations trying to do things that they think are in line with the policies. And, you know, there's free, it's freelancing. Um, so are there Russians who are interested in messing with American politics? Of course. Are they state-directed? Some of them maybe. Um, are they state-funded? Some of them maybe. Um, but, you know, we don't know. So you'll probably find something. Uh, somebody's doing something, and you can probably link it to the Russian government somehow. Um, and maybe there's a but I'm not sure it matters at this point whether it is a Kremlin decision or it is, in fact, um, a guy in his grandma's apartment in Norilsk, uh, you know, doing this. It's If it's a Russian, it's a Russian. Uh, so we'll find that. Um, we'll also find evidence of past interference, which seems to also keep driving this cycle that every new evidence of something that happened in 2016 creates a desire to do something to show the Russians that that too was not appropriate. So, you know, this doesn't go away um, easily. I think, so I think that's part of it. I think the other thing is you've got the Skripal poisoning, you've got the interference, you've got Russia and Syria, you've got Russia and Ukraine, you've got all of these areas where the United States continues to be unhappy with Russian activities. And then when the U.S. responds, the Russians are unhappy with the U.S. response, and the the spiral continues. So it's um, it's hard to think of an easy way out of this. Uh, honestly, with this president and this Congress, it's just, it's hard to think of an easy way out of it. Um, 
you know, so the best you can hope for is a sort of muddling through, maybe some progress on the arms control front, maybe some agreements on Syria. I think after the election in Ukraine, there's going to be room for progress uh, in Ukraine. Things can happen. But, you know, you're always better off betting on trend lines continuing. And right now the trend line's going down. And on that happy note. <laughs> oh, we are talking about Russia. <laughs> <laughs> Olya, Olger, thank you so much for being here. And thanks to you all for being here. Just a quick reminder that uh, you should follow us on Twitter. We're at Smart Women. I'm at Beverly Kirk. Olga is at Olya Oliger, And her program is at CSIS Russia. And be sure to tune in to her podcast, Russian Roulette. Thanks for being here. Thank you for listening. For more information, go to CSIS.org and subscribe to our podcasts.